The Third Man Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! Back to the Third Men Podcast, the Jack White Third Man Records History Program. And I'm your co-host, Paul Kaminsky. I'm your other co-host, James Kaminsky. And we're coming at you a little late with this, but we wanted to make sure we got it out in order. Elephant Part 2. We're back with Part 2 of our analysis and review of the White Stripes Elephant. That's right. Elephants are notoriously large creatures, so this is a large episode and a large review. Yeah. Tusks. Mm-hmm. Tusks. Tusks. Exactly. Anyway, it's hard, it's hard to get out. That's why it's late. I'm so sorry. James, I thought that this might be three parts. It might just be two. I don't know. So you'll find out, I guess, when Ooh. we post the next episode. But I do want to assure everybody, <laughs> despite our lateness, we do actually have two full other episodes recorded. In the can. Mostly edited. At least One mine is. is. <laughs> yeah. Full of great stories. Um, interesting acts we're talking to but we we started this elephant process and had i just gone through the history of the cast corridor like i had wanted to then everything would have been on time however it's not but we're back here so last episode we talked about um the album's uh inception we talked about the recording of the album elephant and we're doing all of this of course uh, around the anniversary of that record i would encourage anyone who hasn't listened to part one to be a little like coming into the movie halfway through if you don't go back and listen to that one or do what you want i don't care it's also coming into like let's just call it like avatar to the way of water halfway through so like you're not missing 
yeah. a lot of context. You'll but be able you to pick it up. You don't know which way the water's going. Right. The water is going one through. way, and you're like, is it left? Is it right? I don't know. James Cameron wants it to go up or down, maybe. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> so the other interesting thing is that um, we got into a correspondence, a very long, interesting correspondence with Ben Blackwell about this record over email when I started to have some questions that I did not know the answer to. Uh, so we're going to read uh, from that correspondence, and we're going to get everybody up to speed on that stuff. But, James, before we get to all of that... Ooh. Uh, is there a show we fell in love with? No. Is there something we're smelling? Uh-uh. Is there... Uh, what other segments do we do in this? James, is there a rough detective? James, welcome back to the Kinky Corner. <gasps> I'm a seeker, too. I can't help thinking somewhere in the universe there has to be something better than that. There's got to be an answer. You may not like what you find. Just getting the kinks out. All right, all right. Come on, kids. Let's try the enemy. Oh, I'm so happy. I haven't, <laughs> so James, been, I haven't felt this kinky in years. <laughs> <laughs> so, James, I was doing a lot of poking around on YouTube looking for interviews and things to run during this series of episodes that would support some of the uh, hot facts and info I was dumping on you and everybody at home. Love those hot fact dumps. Yeah, when I came across the following recently resurfaced clip which, instead of even saying what it is, I'm just going to put the link in the chat here. Okay. Okay. So, James, tell me when you're ready for me to press play. We'll press play at the same time. We just watch it together. Okay, I'm ready to press play. One, two, three. I think that Ray Davis was a lyrical influence. Um, you know what? I, I, I can't exactly say he, he was because I didn't... Uh, particularly own a lot of Kinks albums. You know, I have a couple, but didn't uh, identify with his lyrics that much, you know, until, you know, maybe recently I've gotten more interested in it. But uh, it was kind of funny. We played a show in New Orleans a few months back. When we got there and the, uh, we, they said some rented equipment for us and it was, it was all broken and everything and uh, we couldn't get it together. I couldn't tune the guitar, so it was just a mess, you know, and there was a tiny little place, and they didn't have a sound man, and it was just obviously going to be a bad show, and then the bartender says, oh, look, Ray Davies is here, and he just walked in. You're like, oh, it's no. Like, <laughs> the worst, you know, <laughs> the worst time for, for him to walk in, I guess. So it was funny, because I don't really pay attention to the crowd very often when we play a show, but That's we a played lot. a couple of songs, and all of a sudden I looked out, and I kind of saw Ray Davies standing out there, and... For the first time in my life, I couldn't stop looking in that direction the whole show. I don't know why. Just, uh, I don't know. But after it was done, he just went. Yeah, I didn't know to talk to him, but he just gave some sort of thumbs up. To us. <laughs> At least he's being polite. I don't know. And, and that's it. And that's it. Um, that's, I found that and was tickled. That's so tickled. That's so charming. That's so adorable. Those kinds of stories don't happen with Jack White anymore. Um, 
And that's really, really funny. I love yeah. that. Yeah, you're right. Uh, that he, it is a lie that he does not pay attention <laughs> to the crowd. But like maybe I think what he meant is like he doesn't like pay attention. Individual yes. people. Like yeah, if yeah. if there's a, a fame a famo in the audience, he's not going to pander to them. He's going to play to the audience instead. Like yeah. as a as a the royal audience. <laughs> right, right, right. Unless there's a royal in the audience, in which case. <laughs> I just love that this this only like surfaced again seven months ago or eleven months ago. You know, it's nice. I, I would love for older White Stripes interviews and things from the MTV era. You know, those these earlier interviews with the band to be more readily available because they're kind of not online. Yeah. But um, anyway, this was a really cute story. Something I notice: Jack's not talking over Meg nearly as much. Uh, she didn't say anything. She did. She was saying it's well. She said a couple things. Maybe I'm just thinking of other. I don't know. It's it's nice. She seems happy and like she's also talking. But maybe I was yeah. just anyway. Uh, very cute. That's the kinky corner. Yeah. It's a Anyway, so uh, back to the topic at hand. And now before we before we dive in, so the the thing we're going to get to today is track by track, but I did want to read from some of these correspondence we had with Ben Blackwell. I actually filled in some blanks from the last episode. So James, last episode, there were still some lingering questions about some different aspects of Elephant that I had. Some holes in our knowledge, and Ben was ready to fill those holes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I at the time of that recording, we had gotten a response on, on one of them, which was the question of, did the White Stripes intentionally travel to London specifically to record at Rag in the spring of 2002? And the answer was yes. And my other question was, I was hearing that some songs were recorded in the November 2001 initial sort of meet and greet, let's call it, between Jack, Meg, and Liam at Rag, It was said at some juncture in interviews that I was looking at, actually through a course of a few interviews, that it's true that we love one another. So the final track on the record was put down during that November date. And so I asked Ben about that as well, and he was able to confirm that that was indeed true. And then I also found that the I Just Don't Know What to Do With Myself cover, I was going to say this as a surprise for the thing, but at a certain point it just sort of doesn't matter because you're on the literally on the email thread. Um, but <laughs> I Just Don't Know What to Do With Myself wasn't even cut at Toe Rag. It was mm-hmm. cut at Made Avail during a John Peel session for the, for the BBC. So that, I thought, were the only two songs that weren't cut in the spring of 2002. But another revelation in my correspondence with Ben Blackwell is that there is a third song that was cut during the November 2001 Toe Rag Sessions. And he made us guess, embarrassingly. Ben made us guess. So he he said, if you get it right, I'll share something really special with you. And and so this is my, this was my guess. I said, well... Girl, You Have No Faith in Medicine was on White Blood Cells Holdover, so that's a possibility. And Hypnotize was written for The Henchman, so it's possible that the Stripes demo of that made it onto this album. But then my final guess was, you got her in your pocket, B, 
because there's a Liam Watson quote I found where he says that they ran through more than one song after It's True That We Love One Another, and he specifically calls out one with Jack singing and playing acoustic guitar. So I thought, surely you've got her in your pocket is a pretty good guess, although I would like for the court to recognize that I did mention two other songs as possibilities. Me and Paul discussed this over over the phone to see if we could get our to, to get our ducks in a row and try and guess this. And so I think me and Paul both kind of were in, in agreement that these are these are three pretty good choices. At least good guesses. And then Ben uh, replies back, they did run through. You've got her in your pocket. But that's not the final version that appears on Elephant. It is the version that appears on the single of the upcoming vault package. So mm. I was kind of right there. And then Ben says, it was hypnotized. Which, by the way, I also guessed. <laughs> but didn't make it my final answer. It's fair. He said the prize was going to be the liner notes for the Elephant Audio File reissue, which we didn't wind up getting. So I asked, oh, was that, uh, well, you know, I'll just read it from here. Was that the Stripes demo for The Henchman? Because we knew that song was originally written for The Henchman. He says it wasn't a Stripes demo. All instruments were played by Jack on the first version of Hypnotize from 1998. He's, he said he was going to dig around and look for the demo. He confirmed that the version recorded on November 5th is the one that appeared on Elephant. And then I asked him about the thing we went over last episode, which was this idea that Elephant was planned to be a gentler, more laid-back album. He said that he actually wasn't familiar with that uh, theory or the, that statement at all, although I did find quotes of Jack saying that, but he said he wasn't familiar offhand. And then he follows with, I think that Jack had once suggested it might be a double album, which was interesting. Hmm. I, don't, I don't even know if they had enough material to make a double album, but maybe. I mean, it is a long record, as we covered last episode. The other question I asked was, was the November 2001 session something informal or something that they were thinking about releasing as like a single or was there talk of this might turn into an album and he replied I think it was very low stakes no big idea behind it he also said you've got to remember they debuted it's true that we love one another on the John Peel show three days after they recorded it Mm -hmm. Uh, so it was instantly being shared all across uh, the world via file sharing and trading and all that glorious 2001 web shit is the quote (laughs) (laughs) not really something that you'd do if you were intending to put it on the album so then I I had one more question for him and this is a question I raised last episode but obviously the first sessions for this album take place even though they didn't know it was for the album in November 2001 then the actual most of the record is recorded in spring of 2002 so I asked him why it took a year then for the album to come out because it doesn't seem like something that they would do is like sit on something for that long it seems kind of unusual to me he said the reason for sitting idle is because the band was still in the thick of promoting white blood cells which is fair Mm -hmm. Uh, he says dead leaves was released as a single in september 2002 and a month later they were on snl still touring still grinding it out also back at that time it was generally considered you don't release a new album in December, January, or February. They hmm. already had label support, 
white blood cells was handled by XL and V2, who would both be on board for Elephant as well. So that is a cool little bit of insight there. And I was really happy and grateful to Mr. Blackwell for getting that to us. That was awesome. He had asked us to fact check, and I think uh, he has been a good resource for that sort of deal. So we appreciate that, Ben. Thank you. We also don't want to bother the man, so we don't actually habitually Speak reach out too much. Well, okay. <laughs> um, so we don't reach out all that often. Um, but in this case, it's not like current albums where Jack will sit down for three hours for across multiple different interviews and like lay out everything. These earlier records, it, they do tend to require a bit of digging. Uh, we had one listener who wrote an, a, an angry comment about the Jack White and the Critics episode we did because he was um, upset we didn't start with the White Stripes. And I'm, I think I say during that Jack and the Critics episode, like, the reason I didn't start there is because that is a whole ball of wax. Like, you have to really dig for some of that stuff. And, like, we just saw with that Kinky Corner... Some of these interviews and things get lost to time and don't even pop up again until like 11 months ago, you know? So yeah. um, I appreciate the uh, angry response. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so all that said, James, shall we jump into the track by track? Let's do it. With a song that we could easily spend an entire episode on, Seven Nation Army. Never heard of it. <laughs> episode we were talking a little bit about revisiting this record for the first time and i'll get i'll get into a little bit of background first but i thought that it was gonna feel like hard work to listen to this song because it's just been done to death Mm -hmm. but i actually it's still you know even though it does it seems overly familiar it did not feel like hard work it it is it's a really it was really nice revisiting this track and actually listening and paying attention to it you know the way it's recorded for this album i think we we have made our opinion clear that we have been overexposed to this song because it's it's their biggest hit but yeah i mean if it comes on on the radio or whatever i'm always game to listen to it it's not one i seek out to play but like it's not one i will turn off and which is where i think you and i differ a little bit you'll you'll like switch or whatever but like it comes on often in like a grocery store or something, maybe not a grocery store, but like, you know, a five guys will play that or something along those lines. When James is at the ball game, 
Yeah. When I'm at the ball game, they're playing that <laughs> song. Well, what, I was at a wedding and they played the remix. But yeah, I was going to say, I, what a know, weird wedding. <laughs> yeah, they played the, it wasn't the Glitch Mob remix, it was another one. But, I mean, I still danced to it, it was still a good song. Anyway. Uh, well, so let me get into a bit of background before we get into our impressions of the tune. So, a lot of this, people I'm sure listening to this program already know, but I'm just going to cover it all for the sake of it. So, the riff which sounds an awful lot like bass guitar, was created uh, by running Jack's semi-acoustic 1950s-style K hollow-body guitar through a Digitech whammy pedal set mm-hmm. down an octave. So it is not a bass guitar, although it sounds like one. It is this, um, this K hollow-body guitar. The Seven Nation Army is how a young Jack White used to mispronounce the Salvation Army. This we know. Seven Nation Army was a throwaway working title for the song initially, which Jack had written uh, before he came up with the lyrics on a sound check in Australia, I think. The stand-in title was just to allow him to identify which song he was talking about. It only developed deeper meaning later. It was his scrambled eggs, if you will. That's right, exactly. He has scrambled eggs. As mentioned, Jack composed the riff during sound check for a show at the Corner Hotel in Melbourne, Australia. He remembered, quote, there's an employee here at Third Man named Ben Swank, and he was with us on tour in Australia when I wrote that song at Soundcheck. I was playing it for Meg, and he was walking by, and I said, Swank, check this riff out, and he said, it's okay. (laughs) Ben Swank, by the way, is a former member of the Stripes Garage Contemporaries. Soledad Brothers, one of the nicest men in, quote, the business, which is really funny for him to follow up and say. Jack told the Detroit Free Press, part of the exercise and challenge for me as a songwriter with Seven Nation Army was to try to not put a chorus in the song. I wanted to see how powerful I could make the track without resorting to it having a chorus. In fact, the melody never changes, only repeats and gets louder and quieter. The idea of a melody not changing in a song is found in a lot of hip-hop tracks through history, where through sampling a melody, only the words create the chorus. (laughs) So that was an interesting little bit of insight there. I think I knew the bit about him intentionally not wanting to to have a, a chorus in there. But, I mean, uh, you look at a song like um, Tomorrow Never Knows, a similar thing. It's, uh, it's fact, in fact, it's all one chord. And as the Beatles would point out, all of Indian music is on one chord. It does have a, a chorus of sorts in that the loud version of the melody becomes the chorus. Yeah, I think that's what he's talking about. The oscillation yeah. Is, yeah. replicates it. Which people sing anyway, so like... (laughs) (laughs) Although I've personally never thought of it this way. This is me talking, not Jack. Seven Nation Army is a a story song. Uh, Mm -hmm. Jack came up with a storyline apparently about a guy who rides into town and finds all his friends are gossiping about him. He feels so bad, quote, he has to leave town, Jack said. But you get lonely. You come back. The song's about gossip. It's about me, Meg, and the people we're dating. Which I couldn't find a whole lot of corroboration for that quote, and that would be kind of unusual to me if he actually admitted that a song was about him. Mm-hmm. But he did tell the Detroit Free Press, quote, at the time, I took some inspiration about some people I knew gossiping and some slight desperation in the character singing. But it had nothing to do with me personally, except that my sister Maureen reminded me that I used to mispronounce the name Salvation Army Store, Seven Nation Army, when I was a young boy. So I crossed out Bond theme in my book and wrote that title instead as a way to inspire myself lyrically. (laughs) 
Ironically, it was my brother Joe and his wife Robin, who were working at the St. Vincent de Paul thrift store in southwest Detroit, that gave me the K-guitar I performed the song on as payment for moving a refrigerator for them. Wow. (laughs) Funny. And then, yeah, just to go back and address something that he said in that quote, yeah, this was apparently intended to be a riff for if he were ever asked to write a James Bond theme. Um, But at the time, Jack thought that to be unlikely, and so he kept it for the Stripes, which, of course, we know later, let's say, what, five years later, he would write... Now, here's here's where things get a little squiggly in history. Like, if he had never released Seven Nation Army, would he have been a big enough household name for him to have been tapped to write a Bond theme? So, like... Was this his audition, you're saying? Well, what I'm saying is, like, if he had saved this for for the Bond stuff, that would have been cool. But would he have ever had the chance to write a Bond theme if he didn't release this one? So it's really, it's a, it's a boggles catch-22. Yeah, no, I know. Yes, James, were I a time traveler, I would be unsure of what to do about that. It's a good thing you're not, I guess. Okay. <laughs> uh, this was the lead-off single for the album. <laughs> Neither the this is interesting. Banter. <laughs> Neither the UK or US labels wanted to go with this song as the first single. They relented at Jack's insistence. They wanted to go with "There's No Home for You Here." Sonically, probably not something everyone wants to hear on the radio. Well, we'll get to it when we get to that song. But that song is just a rewrite of "Dead Leaves in the Dirty Ground." Basically, I, I love the song. I, I just it's. I, I don't think everybody will understand the. <laughs> The, scree- the, uh, the screeching, yeah. The screech, yeah. I think from a label point of view, no one wants to take a big risk. And so if you have a song that is structurally nearly identical to another song that had resonance with people, maybe you would gravitate sure. toward that. Maybe. I mean, it's neat guessing. Uh, the uh, the single charted really well. Um, it hit n- number one in the UK indie charts Number seven in the UK singles. That's pretty darn high for a song like this at that time. And then it charted really well elsewhere, too. It hit number one in the US alternative airplay charts. Only number 76 in the Billboard Top 100, which I think we covered in our Greatest Hits episode. Number 12 in mainstream rock. Number 12 in US hot rock and alternative songs couple other places it charted particularly highly uh switzerland number three italy number three germany number four but it charted pretty well all all across the um across the globe all across the u.s (laughs) Uh, this song carries with it an iconic music video maybe uh, my favorite white stripes music video aside from hardest button to button it's it's a close uh close tie there for me but Jack, actually, interesting, I never noticed this in it. So it's that, the triangle video, everybody knows this. Jack, on a recent tour, actually had a video effect on behind the band performing that sort of mimicked mm-hmm. the uh, iconography from this video. But Jack, at some point in the, in the third verse, holds up his hand. And I know this because I know that video pretty well. But what I didn't realize what he's doing there, James, do you know why he's holding up his hand? Not a clue. He's showing people where he's from. He's doing the state of Michigan. Oh, the mitten. Shaped he's doing like a mitten. mitten. And then... And um, is he pointing to where on the mitten? Yes. And he's pointing to where he came from. So he said, uh, I made the Michigan hand reference in the video as an inside joke to fellow people from Michigan because they're the only ones who know what it means to point to your hand and say, I'm from Kalamazoo. 
<laughs> I thought that was really cool. Uh, just when I thought I wasn't going to learn anything about this song. There we go. Yeah. Now, this this is your favorite video? Of, I mean, because, um, like, they got they got the, the doorbell video. They got the uh, Blue Orchid video. It was so good. The Icky Thump video. Amazing. I find this one and Hardest Button to Button and um, City Lights. Those are my three. Huh. Uh, th- those are my All favorite right. videos. Yeah. They feel, I don't know. Well, City Lights is sort of abstract and stuff. And, and maybe I'm just, I'm rem- I remember it fondly because it was so nice to have another White Stripes song. But I put that video on the other day. I was like, boy, this is really compelling. It's a really cool, cute idea. But same with this one. There's just so much stuff happening that you can kind of get lost in the video and even if you're feeling over familiar with the song this is i mean fell in love with a girl though man the legos i never returned to it i just don't i don't i think the blue orchid video is too dark if they released a good clean you know pristine like we're begging them to do blu-ray version of all the videos (laughs) and i got to see that blue orchid video in pristine shape I think I would feel differently about it, but I think it's too damn dark. <laughs> All right. I don't know. It's just my personal preference. But anyway, I, there's so much to to like look at in this video. And whenever it cuts to Meg, she's just looking so cool. And Jack's looking so cool. It's just they look so damn cool in this one. Um, it's true. I mean, it's a, it's a good video. I'm just, it's ranked high in my pantheon. I just, uh, yeah. you know. I think you're wrong. Music video won best <laughs> editing in a video at the 2003 MTV Video Music Awards, and it was nominated for a couple others as well. Directed by Alex and Martin, a music video directing duo consisting of Alex Cortez and Martin Fugarol. Uh, Alex Cortez noted uh, for screaming, You will fade away into nothing. Um, that is a deep <laughs> cut. I mean... He saps the power. From his- I'll just say that um, in terms of my audio levels, nothing broken. <laughs> um, they uh, directed uh, several music videos uh, over the course of their career, including one for U2, and they won a Grammy for the U2... For me? <laughs> and they won a Grammy for the U2 video Vertigo. So when you actually, when you watch that Vertigo video, you can kind of get their vibe. It's very similar to the mm-hmm. Seven Nation Army video in the sense of like, you know, it's highly stylized graphic and fast paced with lots of little shit happening all the time. They have since disbanded, but oh, no. continue to direct alone. So we're going to have to find those guys. <laughs> For my personal reflections on this song... On this listen, it came across as quite funny to me that Jack opens the record with what sounds like a bass guitar, because it's kind of a trolley thing for him to do, and it's a trolley period for him anyway, for a variety of reasons. But this stands out as like a, a statement in a funny way to me. Like, obviously, we have no bass. There's been whole albums dedicated to the fact that we have no bass. Here's a song that sounds an awful lot like it's starting on a bass guitar, and it's kicking off the record. It's kind of funny to me. Yeah. I mean, the song holds up as good as it ever did. It's got that timeless quality, like we had previously said. And yeah, there's a reason it's it's renowned. It's very it's very catchy. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the cor- the the not chorus earlier of that guitar. That guitar doesn't sound overwhelming to me at all. It just sounds like a different like I phrased it as a different regiment of the Seven Nation Army. Like mm-hmm. 
and that and that brings me to like we've done a lot of ribbing in the last episode about the uh the old technology snobbishness mm-hmm. but sonically speaking it works like this album it works really well because it sounds so damn good i mean i'm not sure when the last time you tried to listen to this song with headphones but it's actually kind of remarkable with the tones they're able to get here and it's done at this time where everything is sort of loud and and the loudness wars are in full swing and all this but it sounds so clean and so i don't know just rich sonically maybe maybe their best sounding album they ever recorded yeah i mean the different tracks they're using and i think the studio have a lot to do with it long gone are the days of the like adding reverb to stuff yeah. which is nice the, the sound is it's a lot cleaner in general i think their music has gotten a lot cleaner in terms of recording overall and so this song really is an, an exception to that i agree with you it's it i listen to it with headphones often well not this song but the albums the white stripes albums and stuff with headphones yeah. a lot because i listen to it at work and it sounds great they they they're using some 60s tricks as we say because it's a studio that is using technology primarily from the 60s but along that 60s bags of tricks is feedback which we actually don't get i don't think too much in stripe stuff there's this beautiful moment where they they have the feedback from the guitar sort of that leaves in the dirty ground starts on that's feedback, true I that's think. true yep you're right you're right there's a beautiful moment right before the wichita line where the feedback sort of escalates and then cuts off abruptly but it it doesn't sound like a hard cut. It sounds like, you know, I'm seeing the waveform actually, like squish. innovative interesting use of that as a transition between portions of the song and i gotta say meg's drumming is leaps and bounds better on this record than it had been i think on previous albums which may just be by virtue of them playing together all the time so like jack always right the, the story goes he tells her never to practice but they're practicing by virtue of playing all these shows you could really hear she's gotten a lot tighter on this record her um fills and styles in general have gotten a lot more complex even still being as simple as they are compared to you know the first two albums yeah the complexity of what she's doing is there and she's playing yeah i i would say she's she's more than a competent drummer at this point and there's a reason why people love meg as a drummer and this album shines uh for her yeah and lyrically, I just wanted to call out the the line, the feeling coming from my bones says find a home is beautiful to me. And, and I love that it ties into the bullweevil-ness of that band. And it's it just feels uh, very natural and intrinsic to the group and doesn't feel like a caricature. It feels sort of genuine. Did you find the, the quote that he says about why he chose Wichita? Because, like, didn't he choose Wichita because he was just, like, trying to think of a just the... The most far away, boring place he could find. I did find. I did find that. I didn't. I didn't include it in the research. But yeah, I did see that. And it's because he had never been there before, or something. He just liked the the, yeah. the sound of the the word. So anyway, that's uh, brings us to track two here. Black math. Hmm. <laughs> 
quote from Jack on black math. I was thinking about a time in high school where I turned my books into the math teacher and said, I refuse to learn from you anymore. The song is about asking questions. A lot of people are taught just to regurgitate information. People don't care if you learn anymore. Opinion gets trampled on. So reading that today hits a little different than it did maybe reading that back when he said it in 2003 or whatever. Because when I read a line like that today, I think about anti-vaxxers and, you know, all this types of stuff. Like, I'm just asking questions. Why can't I ask questions? Do my own research. I don't think that's the spirit necessarily in which this was intended, um, but I do find it off-putting reading it now. (laughs) Yes, I think context is important in this particular case because there is a level of teaching to the test. um, Yes, that that, that is what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. That is just getting through what you need to get through so that you can forget it later it's not giving you a better understanding of the material and i think math is particularly susceptible to this because the way it used to be taught involved a lot of memorization before common core and all that which i know there's a lot of complaints about common core but it does try to get you to understand why one plus one is two instead of you know memorize that one plus one is two you know it's it's you know, you don't have to memorize your times tables. You can kind of really get a grasp on it. And and so, like, I, I kind of appreciate what he's saying to a degree because there's the no child left behind era there. Of yes. Just scantrons, making sure students are getting the, the A's regardless of whether or not they're actually learning it. Yes. They're just being thrust into it. So I, I appreciate it in the context of the time it was written. Yeah, that that is a very good faith assessment of that line and this song maybe i was simply i'm simply too colored by current events to think clearly about it but this song has never been a favorite of mine in fact i think it was on the first would you fight for my love if i'm recalling correctly my attitude changed on this when i saw him do this at the show i referenced an awful lot on this show which was at the roseland show where i was front row for the surprise encore and he opened with this. I think live, this song has taken on a, a new meaning for me personally. On the album, I feel like you could have thrown this one right out. I don't think there's any reason for this to be A, track number two, but B, like, even on this record, it sounds a little generic stripesy to me i think this would i mean for me personally this could have belonged on like white blood cells or something but people mention you know pre-sergeant pepper beetles and post-sergeant pepper beetles i think there's pre-elephant stripes and post-elephant stripes and this is definitely more in the realm of pre-elephant stripes it's got that kind of punky chugginess to it but I, i i do love this song i agree with you though that it takes on a whole new life live of of all of the stripe songs he pulls out at live shows in his solo acts i am never disappointed that it's going to be black math yeah. and it always energizes the crowd yeah and um i've enjoyed every live performance of it i've ever seen maybe not in the context of the album for what it's worth like i, I like it better live too yeah uh, but I, I still like this song an awful lot and yeah i think it was a who will we fight for your love song yeah. um because I remember learning a lot about it. 
and then forgetting it. Just, right. I just think it's a track too. There is there's a conventional wisdom where you want your track two to be a palate cleanser. You want to kick open the door with your track one, and then track two is maybe not your strongest material, but then track three is hits back stronger. That is a conventional wisdom from what I understand, which is, uh, it was pointed out on some Beatle podcast I was listening to where they were talking about how bold of a move it was to have Eleanor Rigby be track two on Revolver because it's, it's a very strong song. And to have that be track two is sort of unusual, I guess, in the context of popular music, but I don't know. It's uh, it just doesn't, it's not as sophisticated. There's a breakdown bit where the tune stops and he goes, into this laughing ha 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 that that I quite like and then I do really love the line maybe I'll put my love on ice teach myself Maybe that'll be nice, yeah. And which bursts into this crazy solo. So there, there's things I definitely like, like about this. It's it's just not as strong to me as some of the other songs. I think it's also louder than a lot of the other tracks. It's got a lot of that. Uh, you were say, we were talking about the cleanness of the 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 later recordings, and uh, this one kind of reverts back a little bit to. It's a dirty boy. Yeah, it's it's got some grit to it. Which I like. I like the grit. I'm a gritman. I like the grit when it's when it oscillates. You know, when it when there's contrast. But anyway, this also every time he plays it, I feel like he's going into teaching mode. Like pun not intended, but like he's he's going into. I'll show you what I know, uh, y'all audience. You gotta listen to me. You got something better to do? Well, teach yourself. Maybe that'll be nice. Yeah, it's mean. It's a little mean. Um, yeah. Which brings us to track three, There's No Home For You Here. Interaction is just the kind to make you drive yourself away. Each simple gesture done by me is counteracted and leaves me standing here with nothing else to say. Completely baffled by a backward indication that an inspired word will come across your tongue. Hands moving up, but to propel the situation, I've simply halted now the conversation's done. Good lord. Powerful. I don't know if this is my top three, but it's up there. Favorite Jack songs of all time. Like, ho- like, woof, woof. I, I, I find myself maybe not liking Black Math as much as I could because I'm just waiting to hear that. Bah! You know, that, whoa, shit. I had this on the car the other day and I was like banging my head, like just full on, like getting into this song. And I've heard it a million times, but 
Man, I never get sick of There's No Home For You Here. It's a good track. Visceral. It's it's visceral and it's angry in a complex way. I really like this song a lot. And yeah, I, I always, you know, if I'm putting on Elephant, I will skip to this song often to be my track one uh, because this is really, really solid. I don't know if it's the one I would... I'm sure people have heard me talk about, blather on about this song in episodes past, but, you know, this is not one that young James would have been a fan of because the um, it, it can be a little painful sonically. It's got some, some moments, but those moments now that I'm older and have more experience have become far more powerful and interesting. And I don't know. I really appreciate what he's doing. Yeah, I... Well, I say I feel the opposite. Uh, when I heard this album for the first time, this was the song that was. I mean, there was this and, and Ball and Biscuit, and I was just like, "Oh my God, Led Zeppelin is back!" Like I just remember thinking, "This is rock music, and it's being made right now at this level." And I remember thinking, "How lucky are we that there's rock music that is popular that is being made like this?" It it just I don't know. It made my chest I, I don't know i felt this one i felt this one really deep the uh just a little bit of background it was eventually released as a as the fourth single on the album almost a year after the album actually came out on march 15th 2004 and um there was some uh some b-sides from the from the first two records that were used uh, some electric lady cuts actually interestingly hmm. enough on there uh the single failed to chart uh, of the track, Jack said, our idea was to see how far we could go with an eight-track recorder, and I think how far we went is too far. It's interesting. He's expressing some regret there. I found a cool quote about the part in the middle that I love so much with the feedback and the choral sort of vocals from mm-hmm. Liam Watson, who engineered the album and this track. Quote, I enjoyed doing the Queen bit and there's no home for you here. He actually misremembers calling uh, the song title. He calls it There's No Room for You Here. But he's referring to that middle bit sounding like Queen, the band Queen. Because Jack had no idea how I was doing it on 8-track. People don't have any real comprehension how you can endlessly overdub. I've got my tricks. When the Beatles were doing their famous stuff, there were four of them recording at the same time, so it was all in one track bouncing between two tape machines. This was more extreme, not quite as tasteful as George Martin. <laughs> um, this is funny to me. About that. Is that a British dig at George Martin? I feel like no, it's like I think slightly... that's reference. I think that's reference. <laughs> okay. Performance, but there's my cue and there's a question on your things. Fortunately, I have come across an answer, which is go away and do not leave a trace. lyrics in this song completely baffled by the backward indication that an inspired word will come across your tongue Whew. <laughs> damn the, this is like this ha- album and then this song in particular is mean it's a mean 
angry song. And you can tell he's between girlfriends. Because <laughs> he's pissed. He's real pissed at something here. Think about it. I'm completely baffled by the backward indication that an inspired word will come across your tongue. What a cool way to say you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's not only that. It's I can't believe how idiotic it was for me to believe that yeah. you could say something smart. Like, it's, yeah. <laughs> Right, yeah. I mean, and that's a whole other level of insult. <laughs> I'm angry at myself for believing in you. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm only waiting for the proper time to tell you that it's impossible to get along with you. It's hard to look you in the face when we are talking, so it helps to have a mirror, a mirror in, the in the room. That is a bold line. I love it so much. Really aggressive. Damn. Damn. <laughs> Taking oh, there's that bit where it's um he says so completely stupid, stupid. Just, just go, go away. away now you get to hear that hurt and that's why i think it it resonated so much with 18 year old idiot paul because when you're a teenager you know and you feel wronged and well, sometimes sometimes when you're an adult and you feel wronged, you, you overreact and storm the capital i mean um uh and, and get angry at people even if you yourself are in the wrong, it sort of doesn't matter. It's an emotional, guttural response to something that somebody else is doing. Jack continues this theme over the years. The end song on Icky Thump. Effect and cause. Yeah, effect and cause. It's, it's about angry karma, where Jack says, I guess you have to have a problem if you want to invent a contraption. First you cause a train wreck, then you put me in traction. That's kind of funny. Well, first came an action and then a reaction, but you can't switch them around for your own satisfaction. You burnt my house down and got mad at my reaction. He's, he's sort of talking in a similar way to there's no home for you here. It's, it's, angry, it's an angry, selfish lyric that is, um, I think, like morally not great, but is something that I think a lot of people have probably felt. I think that was why he was lumped in with the angry white boy blues on the weird Al album, because he sounds like an angry white boy. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it is, it's an emotion that, that young people generally yes. feel. And I, yes. I mean, maybe it sh- sure skews a little towards what men probably that this kind of anger shows up, but um, it's probably more terrifying coming from a man. <laughs> I'll just say that. Um, but it is an emotion that is felt, and yeah, especially after a relationship, that is something you go through. You just you you think about that, like you were saying, the the list of things you do in a relationship, and you're just like, that was stupid. That was so completely stupid. Just go away. Go yeah. away. Get out of my room. Slam the door. Like not. It's a list of regrets and and right. and stuff in a way. But then you learn a little bit more about yourself and anyway which is why it works as a led zeppelin-y teenager-y song i mean it's why look the musicality of this despite those really relatable lyrics for someone who's maybe more juvenile the musicality of it is so sophisticated that it's just there's a lot to chew on you know from from a lot of different vantage points 
And uh, again, Jack, one of the things we keep coming back to from people over the years, people people who don't even like Jack White will admit he he's relatable. His lyrics can be relatable. He can make you feel like he's talking directly to you. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I this song is a favorite of mine. I don't remember where it was on our top 50. Didn't we do like a top 50 Jack song? I don't remember where I put it, but it's high up there. Maybe my favorite song on the album. This may have, I think this was, crack the top five for me if i recall i don't remember exactly but who um say? who could say we can't look back at these sorts of we things it's so completely stupid just go away <laughs> uh next up is uh the track four i just don't know what to do with myself i just don't know what to do with myself i don't know what to do with myself I just don't know what to do with myself I don't know what to do with myself This was the second single off of Elephant and charted surprisingly well. This one hit number 13 in the UK singles chart, so that's pretty high for like a cover. (laughs) Yeah. Not bad. UK indie charts number two, US alternative airplay number 25, Scotland number nine. Um, and then and a couple other places, but that's not a bad chart performance for something that was laid down for a Maida Vale session that wasn't even intended to be on the record. Yeah, this one had a music video, right? Uh, is this the one with? Yeah, this, this is, is Kate the Kate Moss. This is the Kate Moss one. The Kate Moss one. Yeah. So there's a mu- music video where Kate Moss is rolling around in her underwear that is um, has nothing to do with the White Stripes, frankly. Uh, to uh, directed by a Coppola, right? Yeah. Is it Francis Ford Coppola or is it Sophia? Sophia, Sophia Coppola. Coppola yep, yep, yep. So a little background on this song. It was originally written in 1962 by Burt Bacharach and lyricist Hal David and originally recorded, though ultimately shelved that same year by R&B singer Chuck Jackson. I just don't know what to do with myself don't know just what to do with myself I'm so used to doing everything with you planning everything for two and now that we're through I just don't Another R&B singer named Tommy Hunt then recorded it later in the year, but it failed to chart. Dusty Springfield cut the track at Olympic Studios in London in 1964. It was just the third single of her entire career, and the song went to number three in the UK. So that's a pretty high performance. It's probably where people would know it from. 
Dionne Warwick also had a top 25 hit with it in 1966. Some other artists who recorded versions of this song. Isaac Hayes. Wow. Elvis Costello. Gary Puckett, as produced by Ringo producer Richard Perry. Linda Ronstadt. (laughs) Colin Hay of Men Without Hats and Cameron Diaz. Yes, the actress Cameron Diaz. I think what? she performs what? this in The Wedding Singer. Is sure. that her in The Wedding Singer? I don't, I don't know. I think that's Adam Sandler you're thinking of. I always get Cameron Diaz and Adam Sandler confused, James. Right, right. no, they're, yeah. Um. <laughs> the cover version debuted well before the album, as we mentioned turning up on one of the UK B-sides to fell in love with a girl. This was during that November 19th, 2001 Radio 1 evening session live take of the track that wound up being used on the record. Midi Adhikari was the producer who captured this performance, which ultimately made its way to Elephant. Uh, You'd never know, honestly, that this track wasn't recorded at the same time as the rest of the album. It feels like it effortlessly flows, you know, and I was listening to this thing pretty closely in headphones, like trying to detect a difference sonically, but whatever, maybe it was in the mastering process. They really made this feel like it was part of the record and not this other thing. It works. Sorry, I'm realizing now that they reposted the video seven days ago in honor of the 20th anniversary. So I'm seeing some like recent comments on this on their uh youtube channel about this video which is honestly very funny because most of it's just like i can't believe it's been 20 years you know you know it's great etc etc one person who has clearly not read the description went as an exotic dancer i'm surprised y'all didn't hire a real dancer for the pole inversions or even uh to climb uh no tricks just a single spin <laughs> okay, it's Kate Moss, but from twenty years ago. But all right, wait sure. a wait a roast. Twenty years ago, Kate Moss, you got her, nailed it. This is in a lot of ways the perfect follow up to "There's No Home for You Here" because it's like that song is so angry that you really can't go into another angry rock song after that. You kind of have to let that sit with you for a moment this one is sort of pleasant it's Burt Bacharach he's gonna give you a bit of sentimental swing yay and uh you know you're not you're not saying something is so completely stupid are you are you talking about star of Austin Powers 2 Burt Bacharach who I who played on that soundtrack and in the movie with Elvis Costello some other classic comments here Paul just want to say this is really disappointing Oh, thank, thanks, Emily Shepard. Don't know what that means. 
uh, even if this had anything to do with the White Stripes creatively, which I doubt, this sucks. Looks a lot like a record company trying to pump something out, not worried about if it has anything to do with the subject or subject matter. Uh, then hello from Russia with a VPN. Uh, the owner of this video is Bandit from Russia, so that's good. Um, oh, uh, this one's good. Yes, it means you're normal. Oh, I just don't know what to do with... I guess. I guess. Is he... I'm assuming he... <laughs> <laughs> Was this a White Stripes song? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Wow, Kate Moss, you look great for 50. I, I, <laughs> I like that one. I like that one. <laughs> hey did we ever talk about wasn't it uh, isn't it jamie from the kills that was married to her yeah it's something like uh, no dude yeah he was married to kate moss i think moss yep he was married to caitlin moss i wonder if there because we know that the kills and the stripes were palling around in these days i just sent you some photos i found from some fan group of polaroids of 2003 slash four white stripes and the kills which are weird to see i wonder if you know kate moss being in this video was part of that kind of i don't think so because unless they were dating way prior to their marriage because they got married in 2011 and then divorced in 2015 so um he got it he got a couple good years in there good for him I mean, she looks uh, good for fifty. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't know this was a cover when I first heard the album. So, as far as I was concerned, this is just another piece of teenage angst that resonated with me uh, at the time when I heard this album. But uh, to be fair to Young Paul, uh, Burt Bacharach mostly wrote songs for other people. So, yes, the guitar tones on here absolutely killer. Just a miracle that this recording, which was never intended for an album. <laughs> made it and and it happened and meg's drumming is slick and on point and it all sounds really consistent just really beautiful great great song i know why they picked it for a single because it's it's nice it's a good uh, it's a nice pleasant white stripe song yep which brings us to the next track in the cold cold night i saw you standing in the corner on the from jack she meg doesn't like the sound of her own voice at all i wrote that song for her to sing specifically she likes it all right now but she wouldn't tell you that she's very shy and she's super polite she doesn't have the personality to be a songwriter he's saying this all with her in the room i'm sure too in songwriting and presenting something that you create to people you kind of have to have an extroverted attitude 
I get what he's saying here. He just says it in a kind of a really condescending way. Well, he says, you've mentioned that being a trolley album. That's a really trolley way, trolley thing to do. She doesn't like how she sings, so I made her sing a song. She doesn't have the okay. personality to be a songwriter. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> hot take. Hot take alert. Here we go. That's what I found on this one. I remember thinking uh, at the time how appropriate this sounded for her voice and the song in the context of the album. And we're entering, you know, with that prior track, we're entering into that, like, sweet, soothing, low-key lull of the record, which is not a a quality lull, but simply like a a sonic lull. Uh, the, The record does get kind of sweet and mellow for a little while, and this is part of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, sounds great all these years later I don't actually have a whole lot to say about this song other than I love it I love that Wanda Jackson covered it don't fight it any longer come to me again in the cold cold night in the cold cold night and I know that you feel it too when my skin turns into glue, you will know that it's warm inside and you come. I love the tone in it. It's somehow the way Liam was able to capture Jack's guitar. It sounds like a cold, cold night. It sounds like a dripping, mm-hmm. you know, alleyway or something. And then that organ, that. And that's something that we don't think about it often with this album. We think about it more with Satan, but there's a lot of keys on this record. And um, the organ plays a really vital role in this song. I am so happy that we get a couple songs with Meg singing. I think it would have been criminal to not have some Meg singing in the White Stripes catalog. So I'm glad that there is, you know, a couple instances of it. This song being the ma- one of the major instances of it. I think the um, major instance, because... Passive manipulation isn't much of a song. It's just sort of a chant. And then she's on what? Aluminum? Rag and bone. Rag and bone and aluminum, but they're more contributing. Like this as this is really the only Meg song, I think. Which is funny that it's written by Jack. And it kind of it does make me want to hear Jack sing it. Just like not for an album version, just out of curiosity, because I I can hear how he would sing it kind of in my head, but I want to, I kind of want to hear that in, in real life. I know he would never touch it cause it's her song, but yes, um, I don't think, but yeah, yeah, it was a, it's a curiosity thing more than anything. Yes. I do love that little, uh, sneaky organ. They, the cause it just makes me think like somebody's creeping up to uh, somebody's house. Like Sam from Clarissa explains it all is creeping yeah. up to a window and climbing up a ladder and, <laughs> Jackson or Buster Keaton or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And it evokes this feeling of a cold night. I don't know how they got temperature out of um, out of sounds, but there, there you go. Brings us to the next track. I want to be the boy to warm your mother's heart. I want to be the boy to warm your mother's heart. I'm so scared to take you away. I try to win her over from the start. She won't even come out and say hi While my mother baked a little cake for you And even dreaded when you said goodbye What kind of car 
this song a quote from liam watson i enjoyed doing i want to be the boy to warm your mother's heart i like the slide on that one there wasn't anything i didn't like yeah i think one of the few instances of slide on this record yeah as taught to him by johnny walker allegedly that even johnny says i don't remember teaching him that but sure <laughs> is he like a senator now what, what is he johnny walker is he, is he ran for like councilman or something he ran for, ran for something i don't know if he won but um Something like that in Kentucky. Kentucky? That sounds right. Dr. Walker. We love you, doctor. Thank you. And he joined us on the show. I forgot about that. Yeah, you can go yeah. listen to the the uh, just wretched audio, but great, great conversation <laughs> with Johnny Walker. Indeed. That was a world before Zoom, kids. <laughs> <laughs> um, We're holding yeah, phones up to the microphone. It's a, su- it's a sweet song. It's a, it's a quiet sweet song it's funny it's about i guess guess mostly about trying to um get your your significant other's parents to like you yeah (laughs) which is which is a thing that happens in youth you're like i really i want you to like me and there's you don't need that but it's it's something that you know a lot of people want it's like yeah i want you to approve of me at the very least anyway i said the exact same thing so in my notes here that the thing I love the most is how softly it starts. There's a little tapping on the acoustic guitar, you know, that little little tap there. And then we sort of ease into this mid-70s pop rock thing that's sort of unusual for Jack, but at the same time also feels very, very Jack with those familiar chord progressions and bouncy little rhythms. Um, I also really love Meg's drumming on this one. S- some of the lyrics in this album, I think about lyrics in this album a lot sometimes, just out of nowhere. There's the line nothing I come up with seems to work feels like everything I say is a lie never have I felt like such a jerk I'm afraid to even open my eyes um, it's kind of playful while yeah, at the same the, time sad it, that's, it's all very sad because what makes it sad is that the character the, the male character I'm assuming it's the protagonist's character their mother likes the significant other they're like, <laughs> yes. He's like, well, my mom, she she baked a cake for you and <laughs> didn't even want you to leave. Dreaded when you, <laughs> when said, you goodbye. said goodbye. Um, so it's it's like a, a status in a relationship, like punching above your weight class or whatever, you know. Yeah, he's he's putting himself in a, in the, a, a subservient position or the character in a subservient. Position. Yeah, it's that's what I'm trying to. <laughs> but um, yeah, I I really appreciate. Like he's like I'm. I'm going to even finish high school to make sure you like me. Like, I Not I get him. that you're... This <laughs> is, I'm inclined to go finish high school. <laughs> Just to make her notice that I'm around. I think about that line sometimes, too. What kind of cartwheels do I have to pull? What kind of jokes should I let them know? That's... 
<laughs> not really only that, funny. what kind of joke should I lay on her now? Oh, I thought it was let her, let her know. <laughs> it might, well, it depends. Which, let's see. This is, I'm looking at genius lyrics. It's lay on her now. I I thought he was doing a slant rhyme of lay at her now, too. But yeah. I think it's lay oh, on her now. Let her know. Yeah, I thought he was but, just doing one of those But weird... lay on her now is very funny. It's, it, it also, it makes you think, like, he's tried jokes before and they haven't worked. <laughs> It is funny though, because that's you know, yeah, if you're trying to get somebody to like you. You're, you, you know, you're performing for them. Usually, sometimes it's just simply a compulsion to get through the day, using humor that is to uh, to, to to kind of endear them to you. So he's saying he wants to do like physical cartwheels, and it's obvious the mom really does hate him uh, <laughs> or the character because she rips this page out of the telephone book. It's rough. That's like going into someone's phone and deleting the contact. Like that's rough stuff. Thank, thank you for the, the for the translation. To translate, yeah. Or or if I should translate for you, the '90s individuals, it's like that episode of Seinfeld with the uh, the ranking on speed dial, where the mother <laughs> put her number in the speed dial section. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway. I think about this song a lot. I, I like it. It's beautiful piano. Again, you don't think of this record as a piano record, but really nice, nice piano on here. And again, another situation where Meg's drumming is really, really perfectly timed. It's understated, whether through conscious decision or ability, but it also provides this like oomph. And instinctually, I think she was really on point with how she used the percussion to, to drive this song forward. Mm-hmm. Which brings us to the next slow song on this particular gentle portion of the record. You've got her in your pocket. song took on new meaning for people during the acoustic recordings press tour when jack played this live and started to visibly cry Mm -hmm. uh, when he was singing it i think it's widely assumed it's probably put down somewhere officially i just didn't find it that this is him talking about meg and and maybe their relationship I, I don't know if that's speculation or if that's actually something that was that was literally talked about but this is as Jack acoustic songs go, this could kind of fit either on Distill or Satan or, or even Blunderbuss or, or entering heaven alive. I mean, it's, it's, it's a timeless entry into his acoustic songwriting. In my opinion, it feels of the teenage Jack white writing oeuvre, uh, because it's got similar vibes to dead leaves in the dairy ground, all those sorts of 
older songs that he wrote, it's got that that feeling to it, where there's a lot of emotion that seems like it's coming from him, even if he says it's a character. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. And the the lyrics on this are really brutal because there's that line, nobody ever told you it was the wrong way to trick a woman, make her feel she did it her way. That's a real adolescent statement that is primarily about the manipulation of people in your life done for reasons that aren't like aggressive, but out of fear. And you can Mm -hmm. tell that he, again, he's between relationships here because he's, we're getting a lot of this. People are going to leave me. So I have to manipulate even in the prior song, he's trying to manipulate the mother into liking him. It's active manipulation. It is not passive. <laughs> but it, but it's out of fear and and self-preservation. And and that's the most profound part of this song for me. He's singing very sweetly and tenderly and honestly about how he feels the need to control people or the characters need to control people lest they abandon him. Now she might leave like she's threatened before. Grab hold of her fast before her feet leave the floor and she's out the door. That's a forceful gesture. Now it's tactile. It's not even word manipulation. Now it's It's escalated. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And it got out of control. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm going to make another dumb joke. Uh, He he talks a lot about fear of the dawn, but he doesn't want this girl to leave. It's more like fear of the gone. (laughs) Ha-ha! Whoa! Whoa! Coming in hot. It's a sad state of affairs, and I think he, he understands the character understands it's a sad state of affairs. The character can't help himself, but you know, he's literally saying, I'm going to put you in my pocket where there's no way out, put it in a safe and lock it. You know, it's like there's a George Harrison song, which kind of has something similar in it, which is called you like me too much where he says, you've gone away this morning, but you're back again tonight telling me there'll be no next time. If I just don't treat you right. Though you've gone away this morning, you'll be back again tonight Telling me there'll be no next time if I just don't treat you right You'll never leave me and you know it's true Cause you like me too much and I like you You'll never leave me and you know it's true mm-hmm. You like me too much and I like you That That's a little bit, bit different, but the following line you tried before to leave me but you haven't got the nerve to walk out and make me lonely which is all that i deserve is is something similar to what jack is talking about here in this song i do love the little bit the desperation in his voice when he sings the line you're searching your head for something clever to say but all he can muster is don't go away it's like he's trying to he's thinking maybe he can you know say some speech and they'll stay and stuff but all he can get out all the character and say can get out is don't go away it's a childlike again white stripes children like childlike don't leave me (laughs) Uh, which is another visceral reaction to an emotional state of being in a young adulthood it's like this is what breaking up can be like you know just if you are on the side of the breaky up e instead of the breaky upper 
it feels like, well, I didn't think anything was wrong. What can I say to make you stay? And, and it, the, the truth is, once something like that has happened, there's not a lot you can say because the, yeah. then it, the whole dynamic has changed. Right. And so he's he's really fighting to keep this person in his life, even though that person doesn't want to necessarily do it anymore. They're done. And, that, and yeah. y- you can't. It's nothing you and can't it's a say. lot it's a lot to wrestle with emotionally I, I and I think it like you said Paul lyrics are relatable he experienced divorce in his 20s mm-hmm I can't I couldn't even experience a turkey sandwich properly in my 20s <laughs> like the the notion of divorce is so it's so heavy and adult and an unsolvable problem <laughs> and he had to go through that as a young person. That must do something to you emotionally that would give you reason to have in your head a song like You've Got Her in Your Pocket. Because it's a mature idea to acknowledge that there are things in this world you can't change. Mm-hmm. That would be endlessly frustrating to a young person and... The acknowledgement of that, I think, is a cornerstone of maturity in, in most people. And he had to do it in the public, in music, as a young person. It's really, that's tough. I mean, it's one of the best things about creativity and art, is you're able to get these dynamic concepts and illustrate them for others. And Yeah. Yeah. Causes a catharsis in me if we're going <laughs> with art terms. All right, James. Well, that will bring us to Ball and Biscuit. know what happened the end (laughs) we were about to record ball and biscuit all was peaceful and calm when suddenly it was as if the devil got into me and i could not hear anything except guitars fat dirty ear destroying guitar sounds it was as if some higher power said to me that now you jack white it is time to start playing guitar solos First of all, I love that quote, but I'm happy the devil got into him because, whoa, these solos hit so fucking hard. It's a it's, it's a really killer song. I one of the few true blues songs he plays. I mean, you I wonder is that him trying to build up his 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 legacy, trying to do a Robert um, Johnson. Uh, yeah, Devil at the Crossroads situation. Is yeah. this. Uh, See, we're still quoting stuff from our Robert Johnson episode. We should do another old blues guy. 
<laughs> sure. Uh, it'll turn into another game show episode. Uh, <laughs> I was looking for living relatives of Sunhouse and stuff like that. You like, did. Yeah. You did. None which would be which would be fun. They're all none of them got back to you. They're all single. <laughs> anyway, these guitar solos. This is another one which should be played out at this point. Uh, this is one I could listen to endlessly, and I I should be sick of this song. He plays it almost without fail every live show. It's almost up there with Seven Nation Army. But when I hear this song, like the the studio recording of it, I am captivated. I am in. I am like, I want to listen to all, what is it? Seven minutes and 18 seconds. The longest White Stripes song ever recorded. I want to listen to all seven minutes of this. And I again, it's another one I was having in the car the other day, and I was not expecting to have a like, move to the music reaction to this album because i've heard it so much and then i did i was like wow this really moved me and i could see i could hear him being moved in the song yeah yeah there's a i mean it's clearly a jam and you don't get a lot of jam music out of out of his solo material like we've we've mentioned it's pretty compact and concise he tries to keep things short and sweet yeah if he can help it uh and this song is long and extended but with good reason and it, it is like you said a, a rocker i said that as sterilely as i've ever said anything this, one, this song is might, a rocker consider this a rocker yeah uh I, I rock i rock some uh, it's interesting I, I i'm hearing similar themes in this song on this listen to other tracks on the record that i haven't really caught on before but there is that control at the cost of your soul from a place of terrifying, crippling insecurity thing in here too. tell everybody in the place to just get out. You know, we're full of commands in this. Uh, it, it scans as bravado and maybe it is, but I'm hearing vulnerability this time around. My strength is tenfold girl. I'll let you see it. If you want to, before you go, he, he knows that they're going to, the person's going to leave it again. It, I'm I'm reading into this because that's what we do on this show, but it is interesting to pick out those themes that they're still here, even in those off the cuff remarks. I'm getting a lot of we we gonna oh we're gonna well we're it's gonna yeah fight. it's hanky panky it's we're making gonna, whoopee we're gonna get clean together Oof. I'm gonna find me a soapbox oh, which I love that wordplay keep it yeah, clean keep it clean let's keep it uh, clean interesting I also really love that he does wordplay with soapbox. Uh, <laughs> I never once connected Keep It Clean with Soapbox. You're right. That's great. Yeah, very good. Uh, gonna find me a soapbox and see where I can shout it. Really? Now listen. <laughs> Another great use of feedback. Uh, we get that. There's a screech, screeching feedback before it goes into this different section of the song stuff. The song got its name, Ball and Biscuit. That's a kind of vintage uh, microphone called an STC 
4021, which they had at Rag Studios in London, where the song was recorded. So Jack just started riffing and, and crafting a song, using that as the basis, and like sort of digging in on his own memory of blues songs. Apparently there's a Willie Dixon tune called The Seventh Son. basis for the um quite possible that i'm your third man girl but it's the fact that i'm the seventh son thing but yeah beautiful song perfect addition to this record great spot to sitting right in the middle here it's a run of unskippable tracks for me except for black math to this point which is why i don't like black math the third man line uh is the line I was doing this all during Avatar 2, The Way of Water, getting really annoying with people. Whenever they said, this is the way of water, I would shove, I was, that's the line. That's the name. Uh, I get, <laughs> they said it. They said it. Uh, so when he says, "I'm," it's, it's a quite possible I'm your third man, girl. I'd be like, yeah, that's the line. Yeah. You did it. You <laughs> said the name of the thing. In the you thing. mentioned the movie. Uh, it's got his two favorite numbers, three and seven, both biblical. James, this is a long record. I think uh, we're going to have to get to the rest of these tracks uh, the next time around. What do you think? I think we've had our ball. Now let's get our biscuit. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. I don't think that's right. Thanks, everybody, for sticking with us through these episodes. <laughs> we covered a lot of ground today. Sometimes we covered it twice accidentally. <laughs> and... Um, it's been really fun listening to this record. I hope everyone out there is enjoying their respective 20th anniversary celebrations. Hopefully when we do the end, our third of three parts of uh, elephant analysis and review, we'll have the vault in hand so we can make that part of the episode. Really mine is on its way. Really excited to, uh, to see that. Yeah. Mine is on. Well, I don't know. I didn't get the tracking notification, but it should hopefully be arriving soon. I seen people online starting to get them. So it was great to see the elephant like listening party, the 20th anniversary things, friend of the show, frequent guest, Luke Sinclair, Luke me over closely. His partner was photographed at the, I think it was the Nashville location where they set up the actual trunk from the, oh, mm-hmm. it's, it's a play on elephant. They're sitting on a trunk. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> we just got it. I just got it. <laughs> It took us so long. I just got it. That's so funny. They're sitting on a trunk. Um, they, they Jack, <laughs> Jack was apparently using that trunk for his kids' toys in their room, mm-hmm. and he, he he was like, "Oh shit, that's the one from the album." And so they brought it out and allowed people to take their own photographs uh, with it. And they set up similar 
displays at the different locations. And David Swanson posted a bunch of behind-the-scenes photographs as well, if you haven't seen, um, yeah. which has some really cool, really cool stuff in it. And Pat Pantano's behind-the-scenes photographs of the album cover shooter also now reposted. Good stuff. <laughs> Just I'm laughing at this trunk thing. I can't believe I never... <laughs> it's very funny. <laughs> I can't believe I never dawned on me. That's what Jack's talking about. Remember last time he was like, I want people on the 700th time viewing the record to be like, oh, shit, it's an elephant. <laughs> that's literally what we just did. <laughs> oh, shit, that's a pun. <laughs> the peanuts, the trunk, it's good. Anyway, we'll see you all back next time for part three. Until next episode, I will be looking for a home recording with James, hopefully next week, and finishing this series. And I will be looking for a home inside of a trunk. Ah! Eating some peanuts. Bye. Bye! The Third Man Podcast was created, edited, and produced by Paul and James Kaminsky. Our theme song, We're the Third Men, was recorded by the band Radkey, who can be found at radkey.net. To contact the show, visit thirdmenpodcast.com or email thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at the thirdmen underscore podcast on Instagram at thirdmencast on Twitter, and search The Third Men on Facebook. Thanks to our Patreon patrons, to everyone who has rated, reviewed, and subscribed, and see you next time. Be the boy to warm your mother's heart, but I'm so scared to take oh, you away. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Neil Sadaka. <laughs> I try to win a rope for my Something always got in the way. Hey everybody, Paul here with a quick message for you. As James and I mentioned many times on the show, this podcast is 100% not-for-profit and a labor of our love for music. We pride ourselves in bringing you interesting, timely content as we have these past 100-plus episodes. Podcasting is, however, a weirdly expensive process, and we actually lose money on hosting, time, equipment, advertising, and all the other little things that we need to do to make these shows for you. So, to help break even on some expenses like those, James and I have set up a Patreon account where you can, if you like, chip in a few bucks to help keep the lights on. It can be as much or as little as you can swing, and all donations are greatly appreciated. The last thing we want to do is hound anybody for cash, so just know that listening to our show is always payment enough, but if you would like to help us out, that would be amazing. All right, that's all from me. Remember, you can head to patreon.com slash thirdmenpodcast, and a huge thank you to everyone who's donated already. All right, everybody, I'll see you on the show. And I'm Wayne Kaminsky. You are all invited to join us on a magical mystery trip through the lives of the Beatles every week on the Yesterday and Today podcast. This show details the chronological journey of the world's most famous band using music, interviews, and rarities collected since the debut of John, Paul, George, and Ringo 
onto the world stage. We're a fan-made production, and we're available now on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. So sit back, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Just don't know what to do with myself I just don't know what to do with myself I'm so used to doing everything Planning for everything for two And I that we're through I just don't know what to do with my time I'm so lonesome for you baby till it's a crime I'm going to a movie all oh, that makes me sad Twice as bad when I'm not with you. I just don't know what to do. You see, like a summer rose, neither sun and the rain. Oh, yeah. I need your Pain. I just don't know what to do myself. I don't know just what to do with myself. Baby, if you're new, love ever turns you down, come on. Still be around 